David McGreevy, the Monster of Worcester. According to Thomas McGreevy, his son David loved children. So why did he brutally kill three young children on Friday the 13th of April, 1973, and send Britain plummeting into a state of mourning and despair? Today's case begins in 1951, when David McGreevy was born to Thomas and Bella McGreevy. He was born in Southport, Lancashire, becoming the couple's second oldest child. His father was a sergeant in the army at this time, due to which the family would sporadically move from place to place throughout Europe. As a result of this, the six siblings struggled to form close friendships with other children and chose to spend their time with each other instead. By all accounts, David's childhood was relatively normal and he remained close to his family throughout his younger days. He was known to be well-focused on his education until 1967 when he left high school at the age of 15 to join the Royal Navy. His father was initially sceptical about this decision since he did not believe that David possessed the necessary qualities and drive needed to be part of the Royal Navy. However, since this was David's lifelong dream, he worked hard to prove his father wrong. David was able to make more friends during his early years in the Navy than he had ever been able to make in his life, and these friendships led to David engaging in social drinking. This quickly spiralled into him developing a full-blown addiction when he started using alcohol to cope with the difficult circumstances that came with being in the Royal Navy. In turn, he got into a lot of trouble for drinking and erratic behaviour. By the age of 19, David had already received warnings for his alcoholism, pranking other sailors, and being involved in fights when drunk. One night, he broke into an office whilst working alone on watch. He noticed a book on the table and began to absentmindedly flick through its pages whilst inside the office. He was severely intoxicated at the time and grew concerned when he noticed his name in the book, because he thought his name being in the book meant he was going to be fired or demoted. He put the book in the bin, not thinking clearly as a result of the drink he'd consumed that evening. He then lit the bin on fire and stood there watching as the flames grew out of control. When he realised the manuscript had been ruined, he sought assistance. When questioned, David claimed he had no idea how the fire started and that he had simply witnessed it while on duty. However, he quickly modified his statement, claiming that he had broken into the office, but that the fire started when he dropped a cigarette from his mouth thus pleading innocence. He was court-martialed, and while he was found not guilty of arson, he was found guilty of negligence. He was sentenced to a 90-day suspension and ordered to submit a psychological evaluation. The outcome of this evaluation has never been made public. Shortly after this incident, David was introduced to Mary, who was the sister of one of his colleagues. David and Mary started writing letters to each other in January of 1971. Over the course of four months, the couple would write at least two letters per week, and, before long, their letters took a romantic turn. David and Mary met for the first time after four months of writing. The following weekend, the two went to a social function together, and it was there that David proposed to Mary. She said yes immediately. David's parents did not approve of his relationship, despite the fact that he was happy and in love. David was dismissed from the Navy later that year, and in August he travelled to his parents' house in Worcestershire. With the rest of his life looking bleak, David concentrated on this one source of hope, his fiancée, Mary. Despite being made unemployed and impoverished, he began to fantasise about having a large, conventional, expensive wedding. 
David and Mary had intended to tie the knot that Christmas, but the wedding didn't go ahead as they were now both unemployed and couldn't afford to marry. They remained together until the following year, when Mary ended the relationship on New Year's Eve, claiming that David was more in love with her than she was with him, and that his constant drinking made him unattractive to her. David tried to improve his life, even though the unexpected separation weighed on him, and he found work as a cook and a labourer, but ultimately he was fired from both jobs. As a result, David spent most of his time at his parents' house, drinking, and soon lost all desire to work. After a while, his parents had had enough of their 20-year-old son not carrying his weight in the house or paying rent, and they decided he needed to move out. David moved from place to place for a couple of weeks and stayed in several hostels before contacting a friend from high school, Clive Ralph. Clive married Elise, who was another former classmate of David's. The couple had married young after they found out that Elise was pregnant when they were just 16 years old. David McGreevy, who was now 22, moved in with Clive and Elise in 1973. By this time, the couple had three children, Paul, who was four years old, Dawn, who was two, and Samantha, who was only nine months old. He paid the couple six pounds a week in rent and would occasionally assist in the preparation of Sunday dinner. Clive and Elise worked long hours to provide a good life for their children. Elise worked as a barmaid, while Clive worked long hours as a lorry driver, and sometimes, when they were both working, David would be entrusted with caring for the three children. Neighbours said that David seemed well-educated, but that he had a dark side when he drank. When David drank, he became rude and leery, but he never hurt anyone, and many people simply learned to avoid him when he was intoxicated. However, according to the people who had seen him with the Ralph children, David really seemed to love spending time with the kids and was described to almost be like a second father to them. He was always doing things for the kids, helping them out, and he had even told Elise that she was being too tough with them on one occasion. Since he worked day shifts, the couple decided that David would get the kids bathed, ready for bed, and give Samantha a bottle before bed while Elise and Clive were at work. Things seemed to be going quite well for everyone involved. This seemingly perfect arrangement came to a screeching halt when David went to the Vauxhall pub on Friday the 13th of April 1973 and drank himself to intoxication. It was later reported that he had had between five and seven pints that evening. He got into an argument with another man in the pub after David put his cigarette in his beer and he was asked to leave. David then returned to the Ralph residence to look after the three children. Meanwhile, Clive was on his way to the Punchbowl Tavern to pick up Elise at the end of her shift. Clive would frequently assist Elise in closing the tavern for the night, and this night was no exception. They decided to have one drink before heading home shortly before midnight. When they arrived home, they could see police cars parked outside their house. Understandably, they were worried. What had happened within the walls of the Ralph residence? The couple were led to the local police station, where they were informed that their children had been murdered. Elise grew so hysterical that she had to be sedated by a doctor present at the station. Later, she stated in an interview, This is when they told us that there had been a murder, that there was an investigation going on, and that's as far as I can really remember properly, because there was a doctor there at the time, because I went hysterical, which you would, and he gave me an injection, and I don't really, I never ever went back to the house. I wasn't allowed 
because I was screaming, saying that I wanted to go and see my children, and they said we couldn't do that. I wasn't allowed to go to the mortuary. You see, Samantha had begun to cry for her bottle shortly after David returned home, by which point he was so intoxicated that he could barely think straight. The baby's crying sent him spiralling into a fit of rage, and instead of reaching for Samantha's bottle, as he had done so many times before, he put his hands over her mouth until she became unresponsive. He then grabbed her and swung her against a wall repeatedly. Her skull was crushed as a result of being slammed into the wall with such brutal force. He then went to their other daughter, Dawn, and cut her throat with a razor blade before strangling their son, Paul, with a piece of curtain wire. These actions alone were gruesome enough, but David was far from being done. He went down to the basement and fetched a pickaxe, which he used to mutilate the remains of the three children. Even this did not cause him to snap out of his rage. He took the remains of the children and impaled them onto a spiked gate in a neighbour's back garden before fleeing the scene. Neighbours had heard screams and shouting coming from the Ralph's house throughout the brutal attack and had seen different rooms' lights turn on and off at different times. They called the police because they were worried. Police arrived at the home, thinking it was likely a domestic dispute. They knocked on the front door, and when they got no response, they went in through the back of the property, where they discovered the remains of the three children. The police immediately cordoned off the house, and initially thought the children's parents were involved in the crime. At the time, they theorised that the parents may have harmed themselves inside the house, leaving the authorities with no choice but to break in. Upon entering the house, investigators discovered the children's beds were covered with blood, but no one else was in the house. When Clive and Elise finally arrived, authorities noted that they were in good spirits as they walked towards their home, which is obviously not typical of people who have just murdered their children. Both parents had solid alibis for the time when the murders had taken place. Investigators looked for David for several hours before finding him roaming a nearby street, Lawnsdown Road, at around 3.50am. When he was apprehended, David pretended not to know what was going on and even asked the officers, What's this all about? He was arrested and sent to the local police station to be interrogated. David initially denied any involvement in the murders, but when pressed, he said, It was me, but it wasn't me. Police continued to interview David about the murders, and he soon began to elaborate on exactly what he had done to the children. He stated, I put my hand over her mouth, and it went from there. It's all in the house. On Paul, I used a wire. I was going to bury him, but I couldn't. I went outside and put them on the fence. All I could hear was kids, kids, kids. When asked why he did what he did, his response was haunting. He simply said, the baby would not stop crying. David appeared in court on the 28th of June, 1973, and pleaded guilty to the killing of the three Ralph children. Since David pleaded guilty and there was no defence plea, the hearing lasted only eight minutes. David received multiple life sentences with a minimum of 20 years in prison. The judge in the case, Justice Ashworth, stated, There is only one sentence I can pass, and that is life imprisonment. But in this case, so appalling to the Crown, and in the public interest so grave as to risk any repetition, 
I recommend the sentence should not elapse before twenty years. David was abused by several other inmates in prison, and as a result, he spent most of his time there in solitary confinement. He faced a great deal of animosity while serving time for harming children, and had been beaten and assaulted on multiple occasions. His belongings would often be covered in urine and feces, and his cell was damaged and smashed up on a regular basis. He also spent a significant portion of his time in prison under Rule 43, which protects prisoners who are deemed weak or require protection for their own safety. He had, however, been imprisoned in the general population section or open jail multiple times over the years. However, following attack after attack, after his fellow inmates learned of his actions, this privilege had always been rescinded. David McGreevy was subsequently transferred to an open prison in 2006 and was instructed to stay in a hostel in Liverpool. After this decision was met with public outrage, he was sent back to prison. Until 2009, when the High Court overturned the anonymity order that hid his identity from the public, David's name was kept a secret and he was simply known as the Monster of Worcester. David feared that revealing his identity would put him in danger from other convicts and cause the parole process to be disturbed. The media appealed to the gagging order, which was backed by the Secretary of State for Justice. They claimed it was legally faulty and barred the public from knowing all the facts of the case. The Press Association warned the High Court that granting anonymity in this instance will set a precedent for other high-profile criminals seeking similar orders. The lawyer representing the interests of the press, Guy Vassal Adams, told the court that the full extent of David's actions was extraordinarily awful, even by the worst of standards, but the ruling barred the media from reporting that there were three sadistic killings. That's not even close to the whole story, Vassal Adams had remarked. He also told the judges that the arguments concerning whether the media should be permitted to put his life in jeopardy or jeopardise his chances of rehabilitation were irrelevant. Such considerations, he added, were only applicable in cases like John Venables and Robert Thompson's, who were given new identities after being convicted of murdering James Bulger as children. During this time, Elise stated in an interview, He doesn't deserve human rights. He's not even human. I think about what he did every minute of every day because he took my life away. I can't go to family parties anymore. I can't celebrate anything. I can't and will never move on. For what he did to my three children and me, he deserves the same treatment that they got. Death. He applied again for parole in 2009 and it was denied, but every time he goes for it, I'm terrified they're going to let him out. I won't find peace until he's dead and I am laid to rest with my babies. The Supreme Court ultimately determined that, while fresh anonymity for other convicts was possible, there was no actual and immediate threat to his life. The Justice Secretary welcomed the ruling, stating, This is a clear victory for open justice. The public has every right to know when serious offenders are taking legal action on matters which relate to their imprisonment. The Monster of Worcester now had a name a name other than evil. In 2016, several media outlets reported that David was being considered for release and would soon have a parole hearing. This announcement caused dread and resentment to resurface in the town where the crime had occurred, 
especially among the victims' families. The community's worst fears were realised two years later when it was reported that David McGreevy had been cleared for release by the parole board. According to the parole board, David McGreevy had changed considerably during his 45 years spent in prison. They claimed he had gained self-control, as well as thorough awareness of his difficulties and what caused them. They suggested that David was not likely to re-offend in the future due to several factors, including improved self-control and the ability to remain calm in stressful situations, confirmed with analysis from a psychologist. They also discovered that he had demonstrated the tendency to be docile and cooperative with authority, in addition to forming a protective network of supportive friends within the community. David was released from prison in 2019 under tight restrictions. These included a strict curfew and a geotag, as well as a ban from Worcester and the area where Elise Ralph resided. Elise was understandably upset by David's release and stated, They said he was going in for life and then they changed it to a minimum of 20 years. But he hasn't done 60 years. He took three lives, not just one or two, three. The exclusion zones imposed on him give me a bit of peace of mind, but it is still not fair he has been released after what he has done. There's other prisoners that haven't done half as bad as what he did to my children and they haven't been put up for parole. So what has made him able to get parole? It is impossible to pin down a motive for these heinous murders. Everyone who knew David McGreevy said that he adored children. Even the victim's mother, Elise Ralph herself, couldn't fathom why David had committed such a brutal act, recalling how he loved to bounce the children up and down on his knee and would spend hours playing with them. Yes, David McGreevy killed the Ralph children, but the reason for his actions have remained a mystery, even, it seems to David himself.